Hey guys, my name is Alex, and this is the Thousand Movie Project podcast, or it's like a Bandcamp thing. I haven't decided what I'm going to do with this, but so this is me. I've been thinking about this for a while. I've like ingested a substance, which is pretty much legal. It's going to be illegal pretty soon everywhere. But um, yeah, so I've done this, and I'm going to record a DVD commentary for The Bride of Frankenstein from 1935, which was the, this was the third movie for which I ever hosted a public screening under the uh, Thousand Movie Project label. But anyways, okay, so I've got the movie paused at the old universal symbol. Um, the, uh, the plane that revolves around the planet is like right at the center of the screen. If you need to get there, go ahead and get there. If you need to pause this, whatever. All right, so I'm going to push play right now. Yeah, the reason I did it that <laughs> I had started doing, I, I had like started um, words. I had started like recording this. At, yeah, now it says Bride of Frankenstein on the screen. I had started recording this like when I pushed play on the Blu-ray um, main menu, but I realized like every different disc might have different menus and the FBI warnings and shit. But um yeah, this was one of, uh, Bride of Frankenstein is one of my favorite movies from the list up to date. I don't know, fuck. I don't know if I would say it's in, like, the top ten, but, um, it is close. Um, yeah, this was the third movie that I showed when I was doing the Thousand Movie Project public screenings at Teen Poets at Sunset Place. And um, I might do more of them going forward, but um, the first movie that I had shown was from the same year as this. It was uh, the Marx Brothers comedy, A Night at the Opera, 1935, which is an amazing comedy, and I would totally encourage anyone to watch it. And if you want to watch it, I'll watch it with you. But um, And that was the sensibility behind the screening. And that particular screening was like a huge success. I think around 50 people showed up. But I think part of that, okay, well, the, I think when I'm looking back on it, that the success is predicated on two things. First, first was that it was my first screening. And so a bunch of friends wanted to show solidarity. And so they showed up. And the second is that it was a comedy. And it was a comedy that, uh, like, the Marx Brothers are, I think, a household name, but maybe the particular titles are not, so people were drawn to the Marx Brothers name. Okay, so, like, I'll elaborate on this later on. So, um, we're at the part in the movie where, like, it's just fading in on our characters, it's in a giant mansion, and uh, we're seeing um, Mary Shelley, played by Elsa Lancaster, who also plays the Bride of Frankenstein herself in the final scene. Um, yeah, she's just kind of, yeah, she kind of just, like, bookends the action of the movie. Here in the beginning, she plays... Uh, I was, just, I swear to God, I was just about to say Nancy Reagan. <laughs> she does not, Nancy Reagan does not appear in The Bride of Frankenstein. Um, no, she, uh, yeah, she plays Mary Shelley. Um, and this dude, oh my God, I love his fucking melodramatic, uh, performance of whoever he plays. Her husband, uh, fucking the poet whose na name eludes me at the moment. Um, but yeah, I always thought this scene was interesting, like, I, I first saw this when I was, I think, 12 or 13, but I thought it was super cool because it was like, you know, a portrait of a writer in a movie, and I felt like every time I saw a writer in a movie, it was fucking absurd, or I don't know, it was just someone who, like, sat down at a typewriter, and if you left them alone for 15 days, they had a novel or a screenplay, and here it's just, yeah, I just remember being enchanted by the idea of, like, well, here that look at look at how this is shot. Like everyone is so she's in such soft focus, and the the fire is blazing, and uh, everyone is 
Everyone else in the room, the only two other people in the room, are like crowding around her like, whoa, you're fucking awesome. So obviously when I was a kid and I wanted to be a writer, I would watch this and I'd be like, oh man, that's a cool fucking kind of writer to be. One who just knits in front of the fire while everyone fucking tells you you're awesome. Um, in my experience as a writer to date, that's not really how it works, regrettably. But, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, this is a, a weird scene. I But, you know, this movie is full of really weird scenes where um, I'm kind of glad that it's there. Like, I can imagine uh, Pavel Klein, uh, with whom I recorded a conversation, two conversations on the podcast not too long ago, um... He was talking in that conversation about how pissed he gets when he sees, like, those um, clickbait ads that are like, oh, ten movies where the critics got it wrong when it first came out. And he was talking about how, like, when you're a movie critic, like, of the moment, like a modern movie critic, you go to you go to the theater, you see the movie once at a press screening, and then you have to go home and you have to write what is essentially a well-informed hot take. And um, he's like, yeah, when you know, maybe watching something like Bride of Frankenstein, Once Upon a Yonder in 1935, whenever it came out, you would see that scene in the beginning with, you know, uh, the Bride of Frankenstein also, you know, playing Mary Shelley. And you'd be like, what the fuck is this little scene? And then at the end of the movie, you'd probably think back on it, like, what the fuck was that? They didn't come back to that scene. Um, we never see those characters again. But, you know, watching the movie again, 80 years later, well, 84, I don't know, I can't math it, but, um, like, it's those weird eccentric scenes that make it so special. Um, something, you know, in ever since I've, I've thought about uh, recording a, a commentary for this, I've been thinking about, well, fucking the same thing I was thinking about when I wrote the essay about it. Um, it's, um, the author Neil Gaiman has a book of essays where one of them is devoted to his love for this movie. And he talks about, you know, the million times that he's seen it in his life. And he talks about the experience of trying to introduce his I don't know, 12 or 13 year old daughter to it. And um, he talks about this weird experience of, you know, watching it again for the first time in a few years. And he says, I realize that every time I sit down to watch it, he says, you know, I've seen it a million times. I know the dialogue pretty much word for word as I'm watching if, you know, I can lip sync it. But he says, um, he says, you know, for all the times that I've seen it and for all that I know what happens next, I don't, in my mind, I don't remember like how one scene leads to the other. Like he can't remember the transitions. He can't remember how the whole, th I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not wording it well, but, um, yeah, I think that's the sign of like really great personal art is, you know, the kind of the kind of thing that as you're experiencing it, you're experiencing it as a piece of art. But then like looking back, you just you can't put it into words because it's not right in front of you. And uh, when you watch all of the like DVD commentary, not the commentaries, the um, fucking I'll get to the commentaries in a moment because I did watch this. But the uh, special features when they talk about uh, James Whale, the guy who directed this and uh, f the first Frankenstein movie, they talk about how he just tried to do integrate a bunch of random shit. Like, it's it's as scary as the first one, but there's there are also comedic elements, whatever. And they just celebrate the fact that, like, he made this movie so much his own. But when you make something so much your own and you put your own spin on it, that means that you're going to betray convention. You're going to do things your own way. And that's the... If you betray convention, then you're basically inviting negative critical response, or at least from audiences. Um, but I don't know. This is... I'm trying to think. I get, I have not seen Gremlins two in like twenty years, but from what I hear, it's a similar you know movie and sequel 
relationship, like part one, part two relationship, where the first one is very earnest and it communicates its very unique, iconic story right away. And then the sequel is kind of playing off the fact that there's no way you can, you know, I was going to say catch that lightning in a bottle twice. Is that the phrase lightning in a, yeah, it's lightning in a bottle. Um, okay. So they're showing that Victor Frankenstein. In the book, he's Victor Frankenstein. In the movie, he's Henry Frankenstein. And then in part one, not only is is the doctor named Henry Frankenstein, but there is another character named Victor in the movie. I don't know what... I feel like that's what a script supervisor does today, is make sure that shit like that doesn't happen. Um, What was I talking about? Fuck. Fuck. Um, Anyways... So, yeah, this is a cool scene with, like, the couple and the married couple at the top of the hill. And she's like, don't go looking for the... I don't know what uh, accent it would be, actually. Oh, these are supposed to be the parents of the little girl that the monster killed um, in the first movie. And that's why this husband, he's got such conviction, he's shaking his fist. He has a literal feather in his cap. (laughs) He's shaking his fist. He's like, I gotta go into the hole. I have to see that the monster is dead. And the hole is... Oh, my God. Oh, that's right. He falls to his death in the hole. Or does Frankenstein... Not Frankenstein's monster. Kill him. Yes. Frankenstein... Okay, so here's Boris Karloff creeping out from a corner for his first appearance of the movie, and it's a good introductory appearance. It's very... There's a big build-up there. But what's interesting is that I think Jack Kirby is the name... I'm going to feel like an idiot if it's not Jack... But that he um, was the makeup guy on this and uh the first frankenstein movie and uh you see a lot of appreciation stuff about his choice in this one because remember the first frankenstein ends with the monster and the doctor trapped in a um what's it called a uh the spinning thing a windmill whatever and um and then the windmill catches fire so when we catch when we see frankenstein's monster for the first time here He's all burned, and, and uh, so the, the makeup artist um, fucking, yeah, gave the monster a bunch of burns in the first scene, and they're like patches of baldness and stuff. And then as the movie progresses, the makeup reflects his healing process. So his hair grows back and whatever, but slowly, like scene by scene. It was a really coordinated thing. Um, and this is like, I think, one of the first outright comedic moments where the monster confronts the lady who works at the Frankenstein castle, and she gives that very, very piercing comedic histrionic shriek i don't know if it's really a histrionic shriek i shouldn't that's me calling her dramatic because oh you know a a seven foot tall zombie just approached you after murdering two people um i don't think you can have a histrionic reaction to confronting a seven foot tall zombie um in fact i think i have a hard time thinking of of how a person could be dramatic enough about that encounter (laughs) Um, so yeah, this is supposed to be, I think, the Frankenstein mansion. Oh, shit, yeah, and everyone is dressed in formal wear, and that's because this movie picks up immediately after the ending of Frankenstein, and Frankenstein, remember, ends on Henry Frankenstein's wedding day, um, and I, but I think this is a different actress playing the woman who was going to be his, um, fucking, uh, wife, and, uh, oh, so... There was a woman there who just did a very... What a weird fucking zoom. Like a weird close-up of uh, of an extra. And she did like a very dramatic couple of blinks for the camera. And then she's gone and we won't see her again. But it reminds... Oh, no, you, there she is again. Um, it reminds me of... Uh, there's a movie from The List from 1920. I don't know what. Uh, I think 
five or six. It's called The Passion of Joan of Arc. It's directed by uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer. And The Passion of Joan of Arc stars a woman named Andrea Falconetti as Joan of Arc. And she, or her performance in that movie is uh, labeled by a lot of people as like the greatest uh, acting that's ever been put to film. But that movie apparently was like lost for decades and people thought it was just gone and you would never see it again. And then it turned up in the 1960s in the uh, janitor's closet of a Norwegian mental hospital. Um, oh, yes, and the woman who did that very dramatic blink on screen a few minutes ago, she looked a lot like Andrea Falconetti in um, Passion of Joan of Arc. Boy, my uh, attention is wandering. So here we have, they're putting the, uh, Henry Frankenstein, that is, that is such a frustrating thing to say, Henry Frankenstein, instead of Victor Frankenstein, when I know there is another character named Victor. Okay, so she is approaching what appears to be the corpse of her husband, who we will find in a moment is actually not dead, um, which I think is a scathing indictment of the uh, competency of paramedics in this village at this time. Oh, actually, I was going to say at this time, but I remember something like, something in the special features of some movie guy pointing out that James Whale made these two movies in such a way that you really can't pinpoint when they take place. Like, there's no modern technology, but there's also no clear, you know, marker of the year. We don't see a calendar. We don't see, you know, there, there isn't a certain president or anything. I don't even fucking think he mentions their country. Okay, so the dude in bed, the dude who plays Henry Frankenstein, I should really have uh, Googled these actors' names. Um, so the guy who plays Henry Frankenstein, he's in bed, and he's recuperating from when a seven-foot-tall zombie threw him off of a windmill. Um, so, yeah, the actor who plays him is, was apparently, like, a really fucked-up alcoholic. And I think he made this movie in the last year of his life. And I think the suggestion was that he was plowed in a lot of these scenes. Or he was just, you know debilitated with a hangover and that's why these scenes are shot in bed is because he like couldn't get up and and function there's a lot of hearsay i should i should have done research before accusing people of uh, debilitating alcoholism um i read that somewhere you know it might have been in that neil gaiman essay that i was just telling you about anyway so here he is he's soliloquizing about what it was like to create a man and he knows what god feels like whatever whatever in time i could have trained him to whatever i could have bred a race that line has not aged well um fuck what's weird is watching some of these old movies and being like oh like they have none of the historical context that we are bringing to this like sometimes you watch something from the 1980s where there's a line that's tasteless for oh my, oh yeah i hosted a screening of monster squad which is rating fucking rated pg i think and so I showed it, but there's, like, they call people, they call each other faggots, like, all throughout that movie. And they're children. Um, but, yeah, times have changed. So, But w my point was, like, you could watch a movie from the 80s, something like Monster Squad, and you could see that, like, flagrant disregard for how that, what that word might mean to the audience. And um, you can be like, okay, well, what had happened historically? by this year, I think it was 1986, what had happened historically by 1986, so we can gauge how fucked up that line is, um, and, you know, and you have to go and sort of comb through things, maybe, to be like, okay, well, I, I don't know if I'm making any sense here, but, like, 1935, you look at this shit, and it's like, fucking World War II had not happened, um, like, 
you know that line about oh well create i could have created a perfect race of men and well, you think like jesus christ the nazis were right right there on the horizon uh just uh i was gonna say four years away no they were there in existence um i guess we just weren't roped into the war for another no the anyways um let me not pretend to know what i'm talking about um so here she is with her candelabra running to the door she's gonna open it doctor i love the way she introduces him dr pretorius um that was a good reveal for him too. This movie's got some good reveals. I know the young Baron Frankenstein is at home. But he's sick. He's in bed. Okay, so this dude—I um, forget the actor's name—but my understanding is that he was like a refined kind of Shakespearean actor who was like, "Here, let me ham it up in a fucking monster movie." That shit is always great. Oh, I just watched. Um, what the fuck is his name? Um, dude's last name is Zoller. Craig S. Zoller or S. Craig Zoller. He did that movie Dragged Across Concrete with uh, Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn. And um, it was really brutal. Why did I bring that up? Um, oh, yeah. Apparently, yeah, one of the actors in that movie is like, he he went to do this very gritty, savage exploitation movie after like a long series of Shakespeare on a major stage or whatever. It was just cool, the idea of like, Shakespearean actor, you think he's like the pinnacle of, you know, thespian refinement or whatever if you can master shakespeare you can master anything and the first thing movie he goes off and makes is fucking uh, it's called dragged across concrete which incidentally was a good movie i liked it and I, oh and i also dig the fact that the filmmaker um s craig zoller or craig s zoller he's from kendall which is like 20 miles away from here um that's where i work um yeah it's a long commute all right so they're talking Dr. Pretorius is here being introduced. Baron Frankenstein now, I believe. Won't you come in, Doctor? Um, yeah, this leads to a really weird scene, I think, somewhere in the immediate future. I guess I'm, well, where this guy, Dr. Pretorius, he wants to create a man, too. And then we see that, oh, he's been, you know, he's been trying, but they all came out like the size of pencils. Um, yeah, weird. Oh, Jesus. Um my dear Baron is the word okay yeah like I said I I first saw this when I was I think 12 or 13 and the reason is because um, I would get an allowance every month. I forget what it was. I think it was like 50 bucks on the first of the month or something. And um, that year, uh, Stephen Sommers, who made those uh, the the first two Mummy movies, he was making Van Helsing with Hugh Jackman. I think Hugh Jackman was like fresh off of the success of X-Men and X-Men 2. And so uh, he makes the Van Helsing movie where um, Dr. Van Helsing goes up against uh, Dracula and the Wolfman and Frankenstein, sort of the holy... Well, yeah, sort of the holy trilogy, holy trinity of the uh, Universal monsters, and in accordance with this, because Van Helsing was being released by uh, Universal, they re-released on DVD um, these these wonderful um, like two disc sets for all of the major Universal monsters, um, even the ones who were not in the Van Helsing movie, although the ones who I'm sure they were reserving for the sequel, which never came to fruition. But uh, there was a Dracula box set, a Wolfman box set, Frankenstein, uh, Invisible Man, The Mummy, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, might have been something else. But um, I got those three, the one, the Trinity, sort of. Um, I had Dracula, Frankenstein, and The Wolfman. And I watched this, 
for the first time then when I was a young teen and uh, I remember just being charmed by it but confused um, yeah but what like what I was just what what occasioned me tonight to actually record this is I was watching some documentary from the BBC out in the living room and uh, it was called the history of horror and uh, this dude I got up to the point like he starts in 1925 with the Phantom of the Opera which is a movie that I fucking hate um, but then he goes up to 1931 which is the day the year that um, both Frankenstein and Dracula were released and so I was just watching all this footage of him, like, walk, watching Dracula and uh, interviewing, uh, you know, some, the one surviving cast member from Dracula. And I remember for this project, for Thousand Movie Project, back in 2016, I finally watched Dracula, from the 1931 Dracula, the first horror talkie, for the first time in my life. I had I'd bought the DVD from that Stephen Sommers Van Helsing thing. I'd bought the two-disc DVD that had Dracula and, like, Dracula's Daughter and a bunch of other old movies and I I think I made four or five serious attempts to watch Dracula as a, when I was 12 or 13 and I fell asleep every single time and then I just didn't try it for you know I guess what 12 years or something and then I managed to do it for the project I guess because my what would you call it my uh, attention span had been hardened by fucking 45 something silent movies um one of which was 10 hours uh the Va- L- L- vampires from 1915 to 1916 it was a serial oh jesus i just i just was jolted because i got this chime on my laptop and it's a chime that keeps popping up whenever i get pop-ups and the reason i have these pop-ups is because there was a week uh back in february where i had to subsist on 20 bucks for like five days and um, I wanted to keep moving through the project, so a friend of mine referred me to a website that streams movies in a way that probably is not very legal, but um, did not injure anyone. And so I go on that website, and I had to watch um, whatever whatever happened to Baby Jane and The Birds, which are two movies that are old enough that I don't feel very criminal to be watching them on this service. Um, but so I watched those two movies, and uh, the website was not fucking with my computer at all. And then days after that, I started getting these pop-ups in the bottom right-hand corner, and they all say that they are from that website, but it's from a, it's for a spectrum of things. Nothing explicitly sexual, but they're trying to sell me on something to find hot local singles in my area, and in order to advertise that, they pop up a picture of a... Total, totally random, a picture of a woman in a sports bra. And... Um, so, anyways, that happens to me a lot at public in public, like at Passion del Cielo or the Starbucks on on Brickle, and like people are walking by, and and suddenly there's a woman in a sports bra popping up on my screen, and I'm sure they are all like you can't really read the caption or anything. They probably just see a pop up of a of a woman scantily clad, and they're like, oh, porn. He watches a lot of porn. Anyways, so uh, there's a bunch of uh, very tiny jar-contained, you know, six-inch people in the screen right now. I don't know how he pulled this off. I think this is one of those, like, enduring mysteries of um, cinema. This and, like, what um, what Brian De Palma made Al Pacino snort on the set of Scarface. I think there's still some... I don't know if it's really ambiguity about that. I think it's that some... Vi- what is it? Vitamin B or something? But um, just that De Palma has not come forward and said exactly what it was. I don't think Al Pacino has either. Um, although I don't know if anyone would really depend on Al Pacino's word. Uh, so anyways, 
here we see the little king climbing out of his jar, trying to go over to the jar that contains the queen, so he can co do coitus. Um, hmm. really remarkable jesus christ i'd like to know how they did this speaking of wanting to know how they did this the other day i watched this documentary fucking um peter bogdanovich made it and it's about buster keaton and uh i had watched a bunch of buster keaton movies for the project and yeah i had a bunch of similar moments like the one i'm having now of like um oh i'm moving my chair across the floor and it's like 10 o'clock at night let me tell you i remember me to tell you the story about why that matters anyway so oh my fuck what the hell was i talking about <laughs> tiny things and oh my god no fucking way what was i talking about <sighs> should i just let it go should i pursue it something about okay dragging my chair um nope i think it's gone man <laughs> <laughs> happens um oh god i need an assistant i wouldn't be like all right listen i'm gonna get stoned and watch frankenstein and you're gonna keep track of what i say <sighs> fuck this dude's talking he's so dr Pretorius is talking to frankenstein and he's like yo i grew my people as little like germs to see what they would grow into and um yeah, it, what's what's interesting is, like, the reason he's coming at Frankenstein so hard about, like, yo, we need to work together to make, you know, another monster um, is because, and I feel like I've met this kind of person before, especially when it comes to writing. You know, I work at a college where a lot of the professors, you know, they're kind of bitter about the fact that they're not a successful writer. Um, anyway, so, like, I'm looking at Dr. Pretorius, and he's done similar experiments to what frankenstein has done but with like none of the success and um he just seems like one of these sorts of people that i know professionally who like spent his whole life trying to do something and he feels entitled to an epiphany of some kind um just because of all the hours he's put into it and i could i i am totally understand in like the pantheon of my major fears like i'm terrified of cockroaches and i'm not good with heights either the ocean frightens me um bats but i think what probably scares me more than um oceans and bats is uh <laughs> professional failure like or not even i because honestly i wouldn't call it professional failure oh here's frankenstein he's going to the thing to like drink some water and i saw in the dvd commentary some scholar points out that like you can see the rocks are like squishing under his weight because they're actually made of like foam not rock anyways well jesus fucking christ what was i talking about <laughs> this was me so annoying to listen to oh so oh yeah okay uh the the <laughs> the uh terror of like professional failure um some weird guttural noises came out of me so um yeah it would just suck to like oh yeah i i don't consider i would not consider it a failure what dr pretorius is experiencing where he's like yo i've been doing this kind of science shit for decades and i i've made some progress but i haven't made the progress that i wanted to make you know therefore i'm a failure i don't ascribe to that like you know you're you you win if you like spend your life just fucking chasing your profession trying to be the best monster maker you can be you know therein lies the victory ah! 
It's funny to watch this, uh, watch uh, Boris Karloff scream like in silence. <laughs> oh Jesus! Sorry to scream that fucking cackle into the mic. There's um, yeah, you know. <laughs> it's interesting here we are by 1935 and like there's a bunch of shit that if you watch it in silence like it does not work they had totally adjusted themselves to start depending on sound technology because i just well you know okay yeah i just watched boris karloff do like without his imploring scream i saw him make an imploring gesture with his hands to these two hunters and um you know if the movie were silent maybe that would not have come off in a funny way um you know, because an audience of a silent movie is, like, accustomed to having things communicated to them via pantomime. Pantomime being just a melodramatic whatever way of expressing yourself. Anyways. Ranting. Oh, yeah, you can already start to see that, like, Frankenstein's hair is growing back from the burns, and, um... <laughs> it might actually weirdly seem like his clothes are repairing themselves in the wake of all those burns. Um... You know, actually, that little shot there of, oh, well, this ongoing shot of the Frankenstein monster running uphill um, and seeing Karloff lumber, uh, it does, it is sort of driving home for me what, I, what I've read so much about and watched so much about, which is like the toll that these two movies took on Karloff's body. Uh, walking around in the platform shoes, the heavy outfit, um, the tons of makeup, the overheating of that makeup, the fact that like, at least for, at least this was the case for the first movie that um, the makeup and the outfit were so restrictive that he could not sit down between takes, and they got like a board that they put at forty five at a forty five degree angle and it could swivel forward and put him back on his feet. But like, instead of sitting down between takes, he would lean on a board. And, um, would do that from probably fucking sun up to sundown. Um, well, not sun, because I'm assuming that they're shooting this on location. No, they would shoot that. People were not really shooting things on location at this time in, in movie history. They were, sh everything was on the lot. So they were in a studio here. So, no, they were not constrained by the light of the sun. Here they've got the monster tied to a big stick, and they're carrying him down, um, to the well. Uh, I have, I, this is what it feels like when I forget to clock in at work and then they, they, uh, look at him and he's strung up like Jesus. Um, when I forget to clock in at work, they fucking lay into me like they're like, they, 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 they found the mercy in their heart to not set me on fire, burn me at the stake. Um, look at me complaining. So all these villagers are beating sticks against the carriage that's carrying the monster back into town, um, which is a good intimidation tactic. So here they are. They're ushering the monster like a pig on a, on, is it called a spit? Um, the big thing that you hang a pig on when you're rotating him over a fire, which I imagine is a lot more difficult than it looks like in, t in movies and cartoons. You know what else is really difficult? Um, this is going to sound sinister that this should come up out of nowhere. Um, my friend Bob took me to a shooting range for the first time about a year ago, and, like, pulling back the slide on a gun is very difficult. I had no idea. Like, John McClane made it look so easy. Um, like, it was as pull as easy as, like, pulling back a Pez dispenser slide or something. But no, it's like, I don't know, pounds of resistance, and you gotta pull it back, which it's just a fucking pain in the ass. Movies lie. Lie about the ease of pulling back a slide. 
So here they are hammering uh, the monster into his shackles. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm feeling big time like what Neil Gaiman was saying of like remembering all of these scenes vividly but totally forgetting their sequence. Like, the movie has its own weird internal logic that you can't understand unless it's playing out in front of you. Like, it just doesn't work in retrospect. Wow, Young Frankenstein really nailed the costumes. Oh, speaking of Young Frankenstein, which was directed by Mel Brooks, um, I think written by him too, um, some biography came out recently of Mel Brooks, and um, it's it was kind of, I, I thought it would be a bigger deal than it is, um, than it turned out to be, just that the biographer, who's apparently like a really respected dude in his profession, and like nobody questions the veracity of what he wrote, but most of the quotes that he accumulated, or like a huge major a huge portion of them, um, were those the quotes that were given to him about what it was like to work with Mel Gibson were submitted on the grounds of anonymity because apparently uh Mel Gibson I said Mel Brooks Mel Brooks is apparently like super litigious and sues everyone for everything is kind of the suggestion I was reading and um but the consensus seems to be surprisingly that he was like something of a tyrant on set um I don't know if it was really to the point of like abusing people being abusive burped away from, I leaned like Tazon Day away from the microphone so I could not burp in your ear but um yeah apparently Mel Gibson Mel fucking Gibson, yeah well yeah Mel Gibson is an asshole too apparently but so is uh, Mel Brooks and he's now like 92 and I think people like tried to reach out to him to be like hey what do you think of the book but, but like acting like a fucking 92 year old uh, multi-millionaire who is still working in show business you know has the time to read an 800-page book, even about himself. Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff here of just the villagers running around and the camera following them and recording their dramas. And it's not... It isn't clear what's going on, but... It, if we follow these villagers, they are carrying us from one plot point to the next, at least. Um, yeah, they're just pointing out what, if, I guess, what are all the bodies of people that the monster has killed? Um, I don't know. I need some water. See, she's like, okay, here we, we see these people around a campfire, and the woman's like, oh, I don't feel comfortable. Her husband's like, yeah, why? She's like, oh, the monster. And he says, don't worry, the monster is in jail. Um, the, the, like, the fact that you are acknowledging that there's a monster in the vicinity, a monster, a monster in the vicinity, like, the fact that he's in jail should mean nothing. Like, if I... The f okay, the fact that she can say, oh, the mo I'm scared of the monster, and her husband knows which one she's talking about. The fact that the husband knows that there is a monster. That's grounds for not, for not camping. Um, fucking... Like, if I was out camping with you, and you were like, 
oh, I feel uncomfortable because of the dragon. And I was like, oh, don't worry. The dragon is in jail. You would not feel consoled. Like, you would... Not even if you had not seen the footage that we just seen of the dragon escaping, you'd be you would just reflexively be like, "Yeah, it's a monster." I don't expect these human jails to hold the monster. So this blind guy is playing the violin and he's doing it really well. Oh, you know what that reminds me of? There's um an essay, and I haven't. I just downloaded the collected essays of uh, Montaigne, and there were some that I read when I was in college. I remember, and there was a passage from one of them, and I don't remember which fucking one it was, but like Montaigne is talking about being being presented. I think he's, if I'm remembering this correctly, um, being presented with the hypothetical that I think everyone has kind of flirted with of like, would you rather go blind or deaf? And of course, because he's a writer and a reader and whatever, he's like, oh, well, to go blind would be the end of my career. It would be the worst case, whatever. Um, but like he's, if I'm remembering this correctly, and fuck knows. So he's writing this essay toward the end of his life, and he's like, oh, yeah, I used to always think it would be worse to go blind than to go deaf. But now from old age, he's looking back, and he's like, the greatest pleasure of my life was conversation and hearing the company of my loved ones. And he's like, I can't imagine the sort of poverty of a life lived without the sound of your loved ones. And so retroactively, he's saying, like, yo, it would have been way worse to be deaf than to be blind. Um, I don't know if I scribe to that. I don't know. I, I don't, you know, you know. He's, he's, I don't know. He, he went the whole way through life. So like, let me trust the dude who's done this already. Um, so the blind guy is saying, oh, you're a stranger to me. I cannot see you. And then they become great friends, which is like, I don't know if you would really, I don't know. Um, maybe this is like a heteronormative attitude, but like whenever I'm like, oh, the great romances of cinema, like the great love scenes of cinema, like I immediately think of like, you know, a heterosexual romance is like the first thing. But like, I think that this scene between the blind man and the, um, and the monster, them getting to know each other over the next few minutes, like there's not a hint of anything homoerotic about it. I don't think. I don't know. Someone could say something about his 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 incessant filleting of that cigar, but um, I think this scene with the blind man getting to know the Frankenstein monster and the Frankenstein monster becoming domesticated and whatever and uh, friendly and human, it's like one of the great romances of uh, of cinema. And it, like I can't even exp. Anyways. Um, yeah, so here is... Okay, well, he just pushed him down onto the bed. So maybe there are some ways that you can be like, oh, actually, this scene is pretty homoerotic. But I don't think so. Maybe... Uh, meh. I'm open to interpretations. Anyways. Perhaps you're afflicted, too. Oh, that's right. The blind guy thinks that, like, he can't see and the monster can't speak. And so it's, like, a particularly, you know, poetic union, whatever that... Oh, I forgot. He's also super religious. And he thinks that God is, like, rhyme, making their situations rhyme or something. Um, yeah, man, that's fucking heartbreaking. Like, in a sweet way. Um, Man, this I, this just this relationship is so heavy. I, I think it's like, fuck. You, you, I remember this would happen a lot. Like watching movie when I was go first going through the movies on the list from the nineteen thirties, there were so many where the scenes were so succinct and the camera was kind of flat and just 
let the actors communicate their points. And, and there's just something like the scene would end and you'd be like, fuck, that is a perfect scene. There's no way it could have been done better. But I don't know if that's just because we're conditioned to look at them, you know, they're being so old and they're having survived into the canon, like, and we just assume that they're doing it right. Because right now, like, I'm, I'm looking at this and I've seen this a million times and I love, as I just said, I think this is like one of the greatest romances in like all of movies. But there's a part of me that's like, man, I wish there had been more of this. Like, I wish there had been something at the end of the movie. Ah, no, it probably would have been lame. But I don't know. I was just a moment ago thinking, like, I would have liked to see more of their bond. And um, reflexively, there's a part of me that's like, no, but it's perfect the way that it is. And the movie would be fucked up. if, Or, like, it, it would the pacing or the emotional punch would be ruined if it were, you know, given more time to breathe. I don't know. Maybe see that's the thing. Sometimes it's just hard to tell. Sometimes like, am I just putting the past on a shelf and deifying it because it's old, or am I? Do I have legit critical gripes with this? Oh man, and fucking the Frankenstein monster shedding a tear as the blind man you know prays on his behalf and sets him into tucks him into bed and shit. Fuck, fuck, man, this is so emotional. Fuck. Oh my god, and Karloff just bleeds those tears off the sides of his face. God damn. And then there's that little special effect as the fade as the as the image fades out, they put some kind of glow stick or something in the little crucifix so that Jesus keeps on glowing. And now for our lesson. Remember this is bread. Bread. Bread good. Good basically me at Panera. And this is wine to drink. Yes, good. Oh, you hear the sirens? Jesus. Please. You know, I am doing this. I know I, I'm thinking of, uh, I know this scene incorporates like the blind guy lighting a cigar for Frankenstein, getting him to smoke. And um, I know that that was part of a big gag in Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein. But it also then diverted my eye toward like the bottom of the screen where i've got these two candles burning fucking scented candles are like my shit now i go every morning to uh, uh passion del cielo in a shopping mall um near my apartment it's a coffee shop and on the floor below it is a um bath and body works which i pass now every day and now i keep wanting to go in there and just like sniff their inventory and i just feel like such a cretin um and I'm like pumpkin vanilla, like, and I don't, I don't like the smell of pumpkin or vanilla. I, I like well, the smell of pumpkin. I think I said lying that I was lying about that for comedic effect. And see, here's the monster saying alone, bad friend, good. Oh man, this shit is so emotional. For I don't know why. Why is this ringing such an emotional bell? Is it because this is a genuinely like effective scene, or is there like something in my chest about this kind of shit? Oh, yeah, he's trying to implore the... Yeah, this is for wood, for the fire. Oh, I love the way he talks in this. The fucking blind dude. Um, and this is fire. Yeah, it's like that guttural Shakespearean actor shit. Fire is good. I just got another fucking pop-up from that from that thing that looks like porn, but is not porn. Um, good, bad. All right, wine, wine, wine. Oh, man. He picks up the violin and, like, smacks it into the blind guy's chest and demands that he play music. Um, 
Anyways. Man, Frankenstein is jamming to that fucking violin. See, without hearing it, it seems so much funnier. <laughs> like, watching the movie, you, and you see him, like, you know, gallivanting, whatever, to the sound of that violin music. You're like, oh, yeah, that is pretty violin music. But without the violin music, you just see him gallivanting, and it's like, fuck, dude. Stop gallivanting. Um, and then he stands up, and he's so fucking tall, man. I wonder how big those platform shoes were that he's wearing. Friend, this is the fiend that's been murdering half the country. Okay, he has murdered hardly half the countryside. Um, unless the countryside is populated by like nine people. That's not an even number. No, it's so ten people. Even then, I, I doubt it. I doubt it. Oh, that's another thing, yeah. When we were earlier in that scene in the village and they're walking around like, look at all these corpses of people the monster has killed. Like, we don't know if he did because we didn't see it happen. Hmm. You know, this movie does such a good job at humanizing the monster and like illustrating the fact that when he does hurt people, it's inadvertent. Um, that it, I was wondering, like, the censors of this time... Would they, would they still have demanded that he die at the end of the movie? I think it's just normal that he die at the end of the movie because he is the monster. Um, but I'm thinking, like, for instance, when Howard Hawks made Scarface, um, the censors at the time were like, y you're romanticizing this gang violence, you're making it sexy, so you have to call it Scarface, the shame of the nation. And so he did that. And then in the last scene when Tony Camonti is being apprehended by cops... Um, apparently he had some more theatrical death, kind of like Tony Montana at the end of, uh, Brian De Palma's Scarface remake. But, um, the ratings board, the, uh, censors were like, no, you can't give him a glorious death. You have to have him die like a coward. You have to have him beg for mercy from the police and then run away and be shot in the back. And, um, yeah, so that's what Howard Hawks had to do. Um... And I'm wondering if, like, James Whale here, I think for aesthetic reasons, he had the monster die again at the end of the movie. But I wonder if maybe the censors were like, as much as you've humanized this monster character, he is a monster and there is blood on his hands. Therefore, he must die at the end of the movie. And I remember, like, moving through the project, like, up until the 60s, there were all these, like, heist movies where you would come to, or just crime movies, where you would come to like the, and sympathize with the criminal protagonist. And uh, as I was moving through the list, I knew that the censors, which were loosening every year, um, that the censors demanded that, you know, nobody who, who leads a life of crime can... Um, come out the winner like they have to be punished on screen and i would watch all these crime movies and be like oh is this gonna be the one is this gonna be the one i hope this is the one where finally for the first time the charming criminal gets away with it um you know kind of like an ocean's 11 thing or something but it was never no it never i yeah i think to to date on the list there has not been a studio movie where the bad guy wins although how often is there a studio movie when the bad guy wins And this is the guy 
who is kind of playing a um, an uh, Igor, you know, imitation, but it is the actor who played Renfield in uh, 1931's um, Dracula. And, uh, you know, actually what I'm, what's reminding me of is uh, I learned of this when I was reading Carrie, a recent biography of Cary Grant by a writer named Mark Elliott, where they were talking about what the studio system was like at this time, which is they would have an actor under contract and they would have that actor working on, you know, three or four movies at a time. And so while they would be working on, you know, movie A uh, and while between scenes on movie A, while the lighting was getting set up and whatever, a golf cart would pick up the actor, take them across the lot to another movie. They would do a scene there and then hop back in the golf cart, drive back to lot A, do a scene there, and then drive back to lot B and do a scene there and back and forth all fucking day. Like, they really worked hard. And so when I see here that the guy who plays Renfield in Dracula is turning up here as Igor in uh, Frankenstein... um, yeah, it's actually not so weird, I guess. What am I talking about? I don't know what he has in that bag. It looked delicious. It wasn't a bag. It was just a paper wrap. Hmm. This is no life for murderers, he says. Yeah, look at this appetizer platter. Oh, I thought that was... Yeah, it's like bread. Oh, I thought that was edibles but it's not it's a skeleton um yeah so it's just a glass of wine and a loaf of bread which looks like a good i think that works as a dinner like a dinner that i feel like i can have at my age Every, like everyone my parents age is like bread don't you dare um so i would have to make a a, a dinner of wine and bread sometime in my 20s which i can do any given night and get cuban cuban a loaf of cuban bread for like like a fucking a big loaf is like a buck. Um, the wine is five or six. Have a cigar. They're my only weakness. Oh yeah, that's a running joke in the movie too. The uh, it's my only weakness thing, which always reminds me of the Mark Twain line where he says something like, um, "Quitting smoking is easy. I, uh, is the easiest thing in the world. I do it every day." Chug that wine, Jesus Christ. You make man like me. Um, yeah, fuck. The, okay, so we see Boris Karloff here as the monster eating what looks like chicken. And um, he's making a mess of it. it it's repulsive. And um, when I was in high school... This was like a social phobia of mine. Like I could not eat in front of people. And it became like this. It, it, I thought I was sparing myself like the hideous look of eating in front of people. And I thought because I would want, I had this thing for a while where like I would see people like, you know, very refined actors eating things in a movie. And I'd be like, they're going to poop that out. And then I'd be like, oh, they're so decorous on screen. But like they're going to shit that apple. That apple is going to come out as a turd, whatever. And, um... Yeah, so, like, I was afraid of, like, eating in front of my friends because I thought, like, they were going to look at me eating and be, and they were going to be just as 
weirdly critical as I was or something. And they're going to be like, oh, I, he's going to shit that out eventually. Um, like, I just totally eliminated from my my understanding of, of life the fact that other people do it, too. Um, but, yeah. Well, oh, my God. Where was I going with that? I don't even re- I don't remember. Um, I just remember how, like, it, it, it drew unwanted attention to itself that people would be like, why is it that every time you come over to our house you refuse to eat anything (laughs) even while everyone else in the room is gorging themselves i remember once i was invited uh, there was a group of friends who were super patient with me and you know i was i still am obsessed with the rocky movies and they indulged me in a rocky movie marathon and um for the marathon they ordered or the the parents at the house where we were ordered uh two pizzas from pizza hut and then like a, a a every like every kind of bucket that kfc serves and so there was fried chicken there was popcorn chicken there were two types of pizza and whatever and um every there were like six people in the room including myself and they were binging gorging themselves and i would not touch a thing because i just didn't i just thought there was something hideous about eating in public or just for me i didn't mind that they were doing it you know what uh, where am i going don't tell me but I don't want to hear see here he is again sitting down I don't know if there has been a scene of the movie so far where he is walking uh, Henry Frankenstein well certainly at the end I know uh, yeah certainly at the end and here's where's ah, Garloff he's, like, he's just standing at the door like <laughs> Like, Dr. Pretorius goes and opens the door for a dramatic reveal, and it's like the monster was just standing there, probably waiting for fucking Pretorius to do some dramatic reveal. Oh my god. Uh, uh. Oh, look, yeah, there was Henry Frankenstein standing up. Oh, that, yeah, that's like the most kinetic thing he's done this whole movie is sit down. From his, the, the shot opens with him in a standing position and then has him sit down. Look at those guns on the wall. Who gold? Well, they are. The doctor's like, no, I'm not gonna do. It. And Frankenstein's like, you got the, the monster. He's like, you gotta do it. And then the doctor's like, I'm not gonna do it. And then Frankenstein is like, <laughs> he just fucking waves his hand derisively. Oh my god, <sighs> this movie's funny. The. <sighs> Excuse me for being nervous, my lady. Oh, he's opening the door. Oh, uh, is that you, Henry? I hope you're watching this with subtitles, so I'm not like the only one. 
Um, so here he is creeping in. I th you know, I think in the first Frankenstein movie, the big thing in the third act is that he attacks Victor Frank Henry Frankenstein fuck Henry Frankenstein's bride. And here in part two, he's doing it again. That's a little less than perfect as a movie. I think. Like, I, I, yeah, like, I, I reflexively want, oh, look at Henry Frankenstein running, good for him. I reflexively want to say, like, this movie is perfect, perfect, but then I watch it and I'm like, you know, he could have done one more draft. Um, the monster has got her. The badness is gone. <laughs> this is Pretorius doing, oh my god, I love reading movies. Who'd have thunk? Oh, fuck, here he is, Pretorius. Um, do nothing and say nothing of this episode. I assure you that the Baroness will be safely returned. What a, what a, what a shit plan as a villain. Like, I would think you want, you, you want to exercise a modicum of discretion in, in, when you go out to reveal the fact that you've kidnapped a grown woman. But... He just goes into a room full of people and he goes, oh yeah, the woman who's been kidnapped, don't worry. I happen to know she'll be fine. That is, that is, that is how, that is quintessentially saying, I kidnapped her. Hello everyone, I kidnapped the person whose kidnap has you concerned. Um, if you can bring her back, I'll do anything you want. Oh, oh yeah, we just saw Henry Frankenstein walk into a room and sit down. He's getting, he's, he's getting some action. He's getting some steps. Um, speak, oh my god, speaking of which, I'm so obsessed with my Fitbit. I'm not wearing it right now because the battery was dying, but I, um, on top of my Fitbit, which is a pedometer, I just downloaded another pedometer from my phone, and my Fitbit expects me to get 14,000 steps a day, which is to say that it is perpetually disappointed. Um, it is, it is, it's like my spouse at this point and lives in a state of perpetual disappointment. I'm so obsessed with it. But my, the new pedometer I downloaded on my phone, um, it starts off with like the expectations of, I guess, the average person, which is 6,000 steps a day. So like I'm killing it on my phone, but I am coming up grievously short according to my wristwatch. I brought that up because Henry Frankenstein was walking. What a, yeah, what a good trajectory. Um, look, it's, whatever. Increase the saline solution. I love that they could just throw out fucking ridiculous, like, they just throw out terms that might be culinary, might be scientific, whatever, it's sci-fi, let's just say things. The simulacrum. This action only responds when the current is applied. We must be patient. The human heart is more complex. Uh, so, like, oh, we have to wait for the current and the saline solution and, and the, you know, the copacetic vasectomy. vasectomy. Uh, they just throw big words with no liter... Okay, this heart is... This heart is useless. Story of my life. I must have another. And it must be sound and young. You know, if he was, in fact, so hungover in the in these scenes, or pissed drunk, he's doing a remarkable job. Like, he is not putting in great, um, sort of physical effort. He's not really exerting himself. But, um, even while seated, he's really throwing himself in. Not, what am I saying? 
So th there goes what? Ugh, anyways, there are always accidental deaths occur. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he doesn't want to face the fact that like by sending this Igor guy out for another, you know, young woman's heart or something, a young heart, he doesn't realize Igor's actually going to kill a young woman because of the request. Oh man, this is upsetting. Whoa, I totally forgot about this scene. Or the implications of this scene. We see him kidnapping that woman. Jesus Christ. Ah, oh, man. Whoa, this movie now feels way darker. I'm sure I was paying attention to that when I saw it. I gave the gendarme 50 crowns. Police case. Yes, very sad. No. Nah. That was such a Cosmo Kramer entrance for the monster. And you know, you know, I wonder if Michael Richards would say that he consulted Boris Karloff for his influences in uh crafting the Kramer character. She wait, I wait. I like the I like the uh the monster's elocution here, if I'm saying that word correctly. Oh my god, he lures the fucking monster into the corner with the promise of alcohol. I forgot about this. But you know, that does make sense that like if you if you made a man, right, and he's showing up with like this infantile mind and then you had the blind guy introducing him to the allure of wine, that sensation, and then like he's got a child's brain and he just drinks the alcohol and he feels that buzz. Good. Right? Does he say it? No. Oh, that's right, because he's being sedated. I was like, what the fuck is that face? I thought he liked wine. But he's like, oh no, something's wrong. It's Yeah, the doctor filled it full of fucking, like, sed sedatives. Um, Elizabeth, she's dead. Elizabeth is alive. She is well. Oh, that's right. He's the avowed kidnapper. There is something elusive about this movie. Like, I, I remember... Th yeah, I'm experiencing exactly what I guess Neil Gaiman was experiencing. Like, I remember all this shit. But, like, I'm watching it unfold and I'm like, What the fuck? Look at those gloves. Those are dishwashing gloves. They could have made a fucking effort. Oh my god, how asinine. This is like some fucking train robber movie from 1920 fuck. They, they just cut to a scene of Igor wearing like a rain slicker. He's dressed like Georgie from It. And he's holding two pieces of a phone up to Elizabeth's ear. So that she can speak with the, the dude against whom a ransom is being held. I feel like I'm having an emotion. I feel like I'm having a slightly too emotional reaction to this movie. Um, forgive me. I'm not. Well, anyways. Uh, this is really cool. Um, 
I, I you know I was gonna hold on to saying not say this until the end, but I'll probably fucking forget. Um, toward the end of the movie, like when Frankenstein's monster blows up the um, the castle, he does so by pulling on a lever. And I remember watching uh, watching this with some film historians um, DVD commentary. And when they came to that scene, the DVD com- the guy was who had done a ton of research on this movie. He was like, you know, in all my reading, I have yet to find any document that indicates why Doctor Frankenstein had a giant lever in the middle of his laboratory that would blow up the castle. <laughs> Maybe I'd be there. And you okay? Look at the bandaged. Okay, so they've got this mummified bride of Frankenstein with um, the 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 conal, uh, fucking uh, proboscis, and um, you see the way that her head is wrapped in those bandages. How could Elsa Lancaster's giant hair? be trapped under that gauze and i know you could say the electrocution whatever blew it up but come on give me a little more realism in the bride of frankenstein that's what i need that's what we all need Oh my god, you know, Toy Story 4 is coming out on Friday, and I'm sure there's going to be some fucking angry reviewers on YouTube and Twitter saying it wasn't realistic. Like, the way that, oh, the way that Woody did this, the way that this, this or that sentient doll reacted to action just wasn't realistic. What is with this venom coming out of me? Like, why am I going on these, like, super resentful rants at people who like are not in the room who I technically don't even know they're like fucking prop anyways these scenes are always charming when they're like zapping the monster to life i never i never get sick of these in the way that like i get sick of seeing you know bruce wayne's origin story told again and again like i will watch you know laborious scenes of um no pun intended of um fucking monsters being brought to life They're flying kites. Oh, this is... Oh, yeah. It's like the Ben Franklin thing. They're essentially a giant key. Um, supposed to attract lightning. So they can bring the bride to life. Oh, my God. The bride being brought to life is so sad. Um, it's like the fucking scene with the uh, the blind guy. You know, this dude who plays Henry Frankenstein is a good-looking dude. It's sad he fucking destroyed his life. And look at the editing here. Like, there's really not anything special going on. It's just they're f- d- striking Dutch angles of the protagonist, which means they have the, the camera at a slight tilt. And they're uh, lighting it weird. And it's giving... It's just... It's influencing how you take the movie. I don't, that's so clever. The way the watching these movies and this is like the anyway just the innovation. 
what an anticlimactic fucking <laughs> just the invasion. Just being ris driven up. Okay, you know, I think I, I think it's safe to say that this scene was probably was probably heavily influenced by Fritz Lang and uh, Metropolis in particular. But if you want to like take a stab at watching um, really engrossing like top notch silent movie, um, like the equivalent of a Scorsese movie from the silent era, it would be um, Doctor Mabusa, The Gambler, by um, Fritz Lang. Check out Dr. Mabusa. It's four hours long, but it plays out just like a really good Netflix series. Like, it's super immersive, and it's really pretty to watch. Um, yeah, you can check that out. Uh, there's a beautiful fucking Im immaculate restaurant. As fine a, re a version as you will find is available for free on YouTube. It's ju Just look, doc look up Dr. Mabusa. I, maybe it says HD in the title. Whatever. You know, Frankenstein's monster kind of looks like Zoolander at some angles, especially when he just looked up toward the bride and his cheeks were pinched in. <laughs> this, oh, the scene where he kills Igor. It's wonderful. It's really, now, you know what? I'm remembering now suddenly how I saw this scene of him killing Igor and I felt like particular joy. That's probably because my reaction to the scene of Igor killing that innocent woman in the street. Here's the bride. She's coming down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is part one of the reveal. This whole movie, I think that's something. This this movie should be like a model for how to dramatically reveal an important character. Literally every major character's introduction in this movie is fucking wonderful. Oh, her hand moving just like Boris's. Ah, what the what a dramatic reaction I had oh my god something about the tearing away of that gauze made, was so like visceral um, maybe I just experienced like a fraction of what a 1935 audience experienced at that scene I remember when I went to see Freddy vs. Jason with my brother um, I was like 13 or something we came back and my dad was curious about how the movie was and my dad, like, remembering his own experience of seeing Frankenstein in theaters, um, you know, in a re-release, and being terrified by it in the in the '60s, he was he stopped and he, he was like, "Can you imagine if children of my generation, like, if you could go back in time and screen Freddy vs. Jason for an audience of people from the 1950s? Like, I don't know what would be more frightening to them, like." the use of cell phones or like the machete wielding dream monster oh here she is with her in her gown with the big hair and the camera's doing its zoom god that's a oh apparently what kept her hair up like that is there is like a wire cage um inside that that whatever you would call it shock of hair
growling softly. Whoa, shit. I can't like make no. I'm so reluctant to make noise on this floor because our downstairs neighbor is is, is so uptight about the slightest sound. When when I first moved in, he like taped a page long handwritten Spanglish note to our door with all like these threatening undertones of like we just want peace. Stop making noise. Um, <laughs> it's, it was like Battlefield Earth or something. It was so stupid. Um, and then he, he he came up one day. And he was like, stop dragging furniture. And I was like, there is no, f I'm not dragging furniture. And then he came into my room and it turns out that my desk chair is directly over his bed. So he had just been fucking accusing us of dragging furniture throughout the apartment just because every, I, you know, why am I even telling this story? Oh, here's the monster digging her hands or something. Oh, the caress, laced fingers intimate oh shit he's like oh yeah and then she hisses at him there and uh, elsa lancaster says that she got her idea for how the bride of frankenstein would hiss but she was imitating um the geese in central park i think or just some wherever she was at the time wherever she had these apparently very formative encounters of trying to chill out with some geese Okay, so here's the monster. He's slinging his arm over the giant <laughs> blow-the-castle lever, um, which we all have. Um, maybe that's why you can't have basements in, in, in Florida. It's because they don't trust Floridians with the blow-up-the-castle lever, which is, of course, in the basement of every castle. Go, you live! Oh, man, the monster is such a fucking heartbreaker in this movie. You stay, he says to Pretorius. We belong dead. So he's got like morals. Oh, he's saying it of the bride too, and here's the bride hissing at him again. What? Look, listen. I'm narrating the movie. What am I doing? Pulls the lever. The castle's exploding. Exploding. Oh, shit. That's a nice job with the miniature. Oh, and then, oh man, you can see that those are mannequins in the in the collapsing laboratory. Oh, man. What an innovative little production. And, what a, and these are beautiful mi miniatures being dissolved, like bricks. Like brick buildings, whatever. Wow. The dust and shit. Like, whoa, that was real. And here are... Whoa, we saw Henry Frankenstein run. And here we end with an embrace. Darling. Darling. Are those the last words of Bride of Frankenstein? That actually makes sense. Yeah, darling, darling, you'd say that to a lover. The end, it says. Uh, it's a universal picture. And don't we see... Um... The credits again? Do they say... Yeah, even in the end credits, like in the beginning, they put a question mark at the monster's mate. Even though they credit Elsa Lancaster, look, at the, f the fifth name down, she plays Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Um, but yeah, okay, so that's the end of the movie. That's the end of Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, thanks for joining me, and, uh, yeah, maybe we'll do this again sometime. Uh, let me know what you think. You can message me, um, from the, uh, Talk to Me tab on thousandmovieproject.com. And, yeah. Bye.